pale horse. The man who sat on him was dead. And hell followed with him. You're killing me, man. Welcome to Declarations of War, Eve's longest running podcast, episode 268. I'm your host, SNAR CEO Alexiev Card, joined by my faithful co host, former NAR director and current FC team manager for Eve University, Zero Cool. Hello, hello. This is Declarations of War, where we discuss Eve PvP and politics with a mercenary perspective. No guest this time. This is going to be our last episode for 2023. We're going to be back with a Black Marks episode coming up next year. But first, we have some really cool stuff to talk about. That's right. The Black Mark Awards are coming back. We've got a look at Vanguard. But before we get to that, we had a poll based on our last episode where we had Brisk Rubal in. And this is kind of a proxy question for the Imperium versus Winterco slash Panfam situation. <laughs> You are facing an opponent of equal strength that may or may not change over time. Maybe they get stronger than you, maybe not. Do you strike first, or do you wait for them to make the first move? We have a very aggressive audience, Zero. 71% say, strike first, act now. I think there's something about taking the initiative and being in control of engagements, right? Because there's nothing worse than... um, content coming to you when you're not exactly ready for it or you've got your eye on something else or you're in the middle of something else um whereas you know if you turn up and you knock on the door of of, uh, an opponent and say hey content's here then uh you know you've kind of got a little bit of an, an advantage there yeah i can see that We've had a lot of back and forth on the show and off the show about whether attackers or defenders truly have an advantage. Obviously, if you're the defender, you can turn up your structure repairs automatically, whether the attackers show up or not. That's kind of on them to take the field first. You can react to what they do. You're setting the timer that things are coming out on. They've got to move to where you are to do anything. There are definitely defender advantages. But attackers also have that advantage. They can choose whether the fight happens or not. They can reinforce your structure over and over and over again if that doesn't bother them morale-wise, which in an alliance like Goonswarm, as Briss described, they really don't mind shooting structures at all. So if you can reinforce a structure 12 times and you don't have to turn up any of those 12 times, maybe in the 13th time you turn up. The defenders have to show up every time because at any time you can turn up and push the timer in. So you don't really have anything to lose. They have something to lose. They have to prep the defense, whereas you can just kind of punt, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think that's it, right? That the attacker, because they all have nothing to lose in a sense, they, they can just stop at any point. And that's partly what I mean when I say they're, they're in control of the engagement as well, right? That if they get bored, if they get disinterested, if they get distracted by something else... They can stop and move on. Whereas if you're defending, well, you just got to keep keep your eye out and keep watching, be ready all the time, really. Now, our audience certainly would not like to be on perpetual defense. But this is also Eve at the strategic level. So if you are taking the time to go across the map to hit them, 
you're leaving your own stuff undefended for a counterattack or a third party, potentially. It's not a non-trivial thing to consider. Yeah, I think for Nullsec right now, I mean, if you're a big entity and you're going to go and knock on the door of the other big entity, then then it's almost certain that uh, if you do get attacked at home, it's not by your opponent, your main opponent, right? It's going to be by some smaller group. So I think that that is where perhaps a, a three-way dynamic in Nullsec might be more interesting. Well, it's been a long time since we've had a proper bipolar EVE world. Usually there has been that sizable third party that could theoretically be a problem or, or would certainly be worth the two major powers' time to court or secure diplomatically. But now we legitimately don't even have that. Uh, you've got the Southeast Agreement alliances, but they're fairly scattered. Tri is down there, but I wouldn't say a, a serious strategic threat to the Imperium or to Pandemic Legion or Winterco. They're just, well, I would call them a regional power. They can certainly dominate some of the alliances down there, but not necessarily a coalition-level power. At least for now. Maybe that changes over time. Who knows? Try as led coalitions in the past. Well, it, it all works with the current way of taking Sov, right? But if that were to change and you could grind away at your opponent without huge numbers in fleet, a bit like they do in Faction Warfare, perhaps, then that could make things different. Is CCP signaling that, though? They seem to be quite happy to develop Faction Warfare for now. I know there's been some... Very long-term talk at FanFest about maybe switching some elements of Faction Warfare over to Sov, but they're certainly not signaling that's going to be happening in the next year or so. Yeah, I think you're right there. There's no real suggestion this is around the corner. But they've kind of hinted, at least strongly hinted, that maybe in two years' time things would be a bit different. Maybe. But did we see this stalemate lasting that long? I don't know. It seems inconceivable in EVE that something would be static for that long. I don't really see a lot of eagerness from either side to change the status quo right now, but I do think the clock is ticking on the Goon Swarm. Just uh, a matter of of scale and time. Um, Eventually they are going to get grown into defeat, (laughs) essentially, as... uh, as fraternity kind of spreads its tendrils out, increases its rental and uh, NPCing space. I mean, at this point, we're talking about piles of ISK that are so massive that it's hard for the average ETH player to really conceive of it on both sides. But, uh, you know, they're, they're going to face a shortage at some point. And you've also got to keep in mind the, the FCing advantage and FC atrophy. You've got to keep your FC sharp on both sides, really. And once this Brave War cools down, there hasn't really been any other opportunity for either side to get a real strategic... Get those reps in. Just put those FCs in a big strategic situation where they're handling caps and super caps and and using them offensively. And if that isn't happening suddenly you, you need those guys to perform top tier in a do or die scenario and they're going to make mistakes. So there is a bit of um, a bit of pressure on them to keep those FCs, FCs sharp before the big fight or 
act before they get dull, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the, well, there's two issues for me at the moment that slow this down, right? This this need for content, etc., for FCs and members. One is the fact that, you know, if you take Goon Swarm and Initiative, for example, you know, if they were to outreach now and go and look for some fights and opponents, um, you know, their, their main time zone opponent is in drone lands. Um, not an area that's easy to get to and stage from. Uh, where they could go, you know, where, where an enemy could be found, where perhaps there's some NPC space nearby or, or whatever, that opponent or those opponents are not really matched up in terms of time zone, right? So, for example, now in Pure Blind, the groups there, they, they're pretty much, you know, different time zone to Initiative and, and Goons. Um, and then you look at the other sort of side of that, that donut, and you've got the Southeast Agreement, at least in place until February. So I think that's one factor that will prevent Goons and Initiative from reaching out and finding some null-type content. And the other one being the the recent, uh, you know, loss of significant amounts of assets and ISK as a result of the uh, the corp theft and and the sabotage stuff recently. I think that that's a dent that they'll obviously be able to repair and, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it certainly knocks them back in, in terms of being able to, I don't know, whelp a few capital fleets. Oh, certainly. And, and Brisk would like to downplay it, of course, but Jay Amazingness has since released a video showing just how much he took, and it's it's considerable. Um, definitely not a death blow for an alliance like Goonswarm by any means, but it's going to take them a while to replenish that war chest, both in ISK and in the actual literal physical ships. They're going to take time to, to rebuild and restock, um, particularly capital ships. They're just labor-intensive, and there's a shortage of certain hulls at the certainly at the higher end level. So it may take them a little bit to, to physically get their ships back into place, but if... Uh, if Pandemic Legion was not going to press the advantage right after the theft, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, right? I mean, goons at the end of the day, they can they can turtle up and crap. They're more than capable of making good amounts of ISK. They've got a very uh, socialist kind of ethos down there where everybody works together and, you know, looks after each other and they share all that space together. And I think, you know, they, they can give them a few months and they will probably put the effort in required to sort this issue out. And it looks like PL and PH and FRAT are going to let them. And they're going to let them have a few months to recover. Uh, so, you know, I think they will. And it, it, just because that happened doesn't mean they won't find a way around it, um, especially if they've been given the time. Like you say, now would be the time to strike, right? I mean, now would be the time to, to really push on them and make them pay and for the, the, the pain, make the pain even worse. Well, really, about two weeks ago would have been the time to strike. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, amazing, though, right? Nothing, really. Uh, you know, you've got a few uh, issues. Slow uh, are currently having uh, some pressure put on on them. That that pure blind um, and, and then cloud ring border is being pushed on a bit, it seems, by by uh, Pandemic Legion and co. Um, where slow are, um, slow children at play. But, but, you know, that's that's a bit of a... A soft target, should we say? Yeah, I think that's just collateral damage from the overall strategic shakeup of uh, B3 breaking up and withdrawing, Brave switching to Imperium. 
Yeah, and you know, I think the spin from PL and, and Co will be well. Well, we are making headway. We are pushing forward. We are moving towards initiative and goons. Look, but uh, you know, they could have skipped over slow probably and just sort of proceeded onwards. Well, speaking of proceeding onwards, let us proceed onwards to talk about Vanguard. This is Eve's new FPS, the spiritual successor to Dust, or at least the literal successor to Dust. I don't know if you're a Dust player, you might agree or disagree about how much the two have in common. Uh, Definitely has a different feel to the game. It's far more gritty. It's kind of got a loot element to it instead of more of a planet side grindy feel. I am not a super huge FPS fan, so if it's much more similar to another popular FPS game that I should know, I probably don't know. <laughs> but uh Zero, it seems like you had a pretty good experience with it. Yeah, I think I'm lucky that, you know, I'm in a position where I pressed play and and it kind of worked, right? I mean, I've had this uh, perpetual little bug where uh, my character is permanently walking backwards ever so slightly. And I've not seen anybody else um, no, I had that one. mention it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, it's played very smoothly. Um, the, the UI, when I use the mouse, it's kind of a bit all over the place. But when I'm in the game, it's fine. And yeah, there's, there's three kind of things that I take from this. Now, I will preface this by saying that, you know, there isn't a huge... Uh, gameplay loop here or amount of content or you know this is very much like an alpha experience right but for an alpha i thought there was a lot of promise and and the reason i say that is because well first of all the the look of the place you know in some of the um, first person shooter type games that i've played i've always found them to be a little too cartoony a little the ground being a little bit too repetitive you know the environment being a little bit um yeah, fake looking. And, and this for me felt like I was on a planet, uh, some sort of alien planet, which is, you know, something I haven't perhaps had since I was playing Elite Dangerous. It feels like, you know, you're on a dusty, rocky planet with a, a crash-landed large ship. That That's impressive for me. And it does, the, the, the fidelity and everything is, is very good. And then the feel of it, right? So when I first, uh, you know, shot at something in this game, and it died really quickly, I was pleased. Because one of the things that have always irritated me about first-person shooters in the modern age uh, is that, you know, there's a huge emphasis on kind of shields and having to, you know, to take down a target is very, very difficult. Or you have like this this much more, um, I don't know, hardcore version, say, say Call of Duty or whatever, where like, you know, you feel like literally a paper-thin and you know, one bullet is going to kill you, which is fair enough, right? But that that perhaps is a little too extreme for me. So because I'm not a first person shooter person, so so for me the the fact that it's kind of right in the middle between, you know, you've got a little bit of tank, you've got a little bit of uh, stay in power, you get shot at, you know, you've got a bit of a, an opportunity to run away or, or hide, but at the same time, if you shoot at something and you hit it a few times, it will die, which was was a nice balance for me. And then when doing that, when engaging in that act of being shot at or shooting things, I thought the sound was was really impactful. And I, I mean, of course, you could just patch any game and change the sound. And it's not as if it's a deal breaker or a make or break thing for any game. But for me, it certainly is a huge part of every 
action game I play is it has to sound good uh, because it, I've, I'm the kind of person who if, if I ever try and play in a game on mute, it just feels, um, it doesn't feel alive. It doesn't feel alive at all. So yeah. Zero, do you play Eve with sound on? Well, I don't put the music on. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it, Eve, I don't think of Eve as, as, as such an action game, right? Like you've got a few warnings and things go beep and, and, and they make wait, sounds wait, when you that, click. Things. Do that again. Uh, wait, wait, they do, you know, you have, you have your little, you know, warnings and, and oh, I, I don't mind all of that. But And I could probably play Eve on mute. I probably could. But when it's an action game, if I can't hear my character moving around, if I can't hear the bullets whizzing past my head and things, it doesn't feel alive. And this game, I, I do, I do enjoy sound. And it, I just when I, the first time it was, I was probably playing with it a bit too loud at first, not realizing. And the first time I sort of pressed, clicked to shoot, it kind of shocked me just how powerful they'd made the guns sound. So the gameplay loop, right? I mean. I was lucky. I, I joined in the game uh, for the first time and somebody was on voice comms who was ever so grateful that somebody else had a microphone and had been prepared to leave it switched on. So this person sort of guided me through uh, my first round in the game and said, all right, we're going to go here and, we're gonna, and was pinging things. So it really felt alive um, straight away for me. It wasn't just me, me wandering around solo. And this person, this was about, I don't know, two or three hours after launch. This person was already sort of, they'd already, they'd already kind of mastered the gameplay loop and was thoroughly enjoying it. So, like, I was just along for the ride. Um, and and we, we, did, we did very well because of that. So I think it's, it's definitely got a lot of promise in terms of, like, a, a team game, a team effort, uh, a collaborative thing, but also... The action. I think any game, any gameplay loop, the fundamentals have to be there, right? You you can't you can't make a driving game feel like like you're really driving a car um, after you've made the entire game and then tweak it afterwards. You kind of have to like from the very beginning, it has to feel like you're driving a car. Uh, and I think it's the same for shooting games. From the very beginning, you need to feel like you're shooting a gun, and that you're you know able to interact with that world in that way um and and straight away i felt that it was it was ticking all of those basic boxes and it can only go better from there i imagine yeah you touched on a really important point is you have to have the core right everything else can be window dressing but if the core isn't right and you finish the game no matter like nothing else you'll change about it will really get it to where it needs to be uh, I had a really rough time playing it. I don't blame CCP for this. This is uh, my computer runs pretty much everything I've tried to play on it fine until I install Vanguard, and uh, it did not did not hold up. Um, I was very slideshowy. I think I had three to four FPS. It's pretty terrible, but that's not on them. It's, it's probably my graphics card. I tried messing with settings, put them as low as possible. It helped a little bit, but not really. Updated drivers helped a little bit, but not really. I just think it's, it's at least in its current form, something my computer is not going to be able to do. But I did get a feel for a couple things, like shooting the gun and uh, some of the other basic UI. 
I thought the crafting UI was nice and simple. I liked that. Uh, you could kind of craft on the go. You didn't have to sit your character in place and craft, which I kind of appreciated. Nice balance between having crafting, but keeping your gameplay nice and flowy. I also appreciated, just like Zero, the, the gun firing experience. It felt powerful to do it. I liked the sound. I quickly noticed that you couldn't just spray and pray because the recoil was insane, at least on the base gun that you're given. You had to... I mean, you could fire rapidly, but you had to pause and aim a little bit and, you know, drop down into your sights. You couldn't just click and go, which I I, I liked as a, a reflection of what they're aiming for as far as the skill level of it. You can't just go and left click and just run down and expect most of your shots to hit. Not only does your reticle get bigger, but your aim actually kind of goes up in, in a direction. So unless you manually correct for that, which is a pain, your best bet is to just fire in short bursts or aim and fire in short bursts. Great. Um, I did have a problem with the bugs. My character did run in random directions. Um, I couldn't quite tell what I was doing to trigger that, but it happened several times. I seem to get stuck into place quite a bit, usually after interacting with one of the menus whether that was the escape menu or one of the crafty menus or the contract menu. That was not so great. Uh, so many, <laughs> yes, last night when I was testing with my friend, we had a, a bug where my body bisected itself and my torso flew away from my legs. I could look <laughs> at my ass, <laughs> my legs running. That was fun. And then I woke up to a screenshot of that happening to somebody else. That was hilarious. Uh, so my actual gameplay experience wasn't too great. But my friend who has tried EVE, he's he's played an alpha account. He got through the tutorial plus about, let's say, about a week or two worth of gameplay. Didn't really hook him. But he's an FPS fan. I convinced him to go try Vanguard out. A, because I thought he might like it, but B, also so I could get an opinion from someone who was aware of the Eve universe, but wasn't really a player, but was an FPS enthusiast who had played, I think Borderlands is his favorite, but he's, he's played a lot of them. Um, I figured he'd be as close to an expert opinion as I could rely on. So uh, he came in, his initial experience on the first drop, very confused. Wasn't really sure what to do, where to go. I think the lack of a tutorial pretty much is to blame for that. Second drop, he made it to one of the looting sites and interacted with the loot mechanics and got some basic crafting in. He liked that a lot. Toward the end of his playthrough, he sort of figured out the objective end of things. It was at this point where I stopped playing entirely and I just watched him. And that's when it really clicked on the third playthrough. He went into the objective system early, picked a contract, and spent his time hunting for the objectives and clearing any NPCs that he ran into on the way to get those objectives. And we had a good time exploring the wreckage of the ship, looking for the thing that we were supposed to be looking for. We were trying to disable some surveillance units. wasn't really clear where they were or what they looked like, so we were kind of poking our heads and everything, trying to figure out 
what was what and what could a surveillance unit be. There were turrets around we thought it might be. They weren't. Eventually we found them toward the end of the mission. Um, but overall, it was, it was good. I think his main gripe was that he couldn't play longer, which is a good gripe to have. There's a literal timer after which you die. He hated that. He wanted to keep going. Um, but yeah, other than that, it seemed great. Once he got the gameplay loop, he was really into it. He seemed very, uh, very positive about the actual gun and shooting mechanics of it. Like Yuzira, I think he appreciated that you were shooting at things and killing them, but when you got shot, you still had a second or two to react and hide or heal or turn and find the guy, and not everything was dying as soon as it got looked at. And his experience was great. He wants to play more, which is, I think, exactly what CCP should be hoping for. Definitely room to fix things, of course. But Yeah, I think there's a, a, a number of things that give it a lot of promise, right? I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think this is going to be the first-person shooter uh, to play on its standing on its own two feet. You know, I think it's going to be something that will be niche, will will perhaps draw people into the universe, and some people will really enjoy. Uh, and what I'm getting at here is that, you know, there is a gap in the market for more hardcore-type, full-loot-type games. And I think one thing they're all missing is... And sometimes you see this with the way that they do their seasons or whatever, right? That once you engage in the gameplay loop and you get good at it and you 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 like you you survive beyond everybody else and you collect all the loot, well, what next? You know, so you you get good and you you um, end up being the last person standing or the last group standing, and then you win the round. Well, okay, and. Now, I know Tarkov has got some mechanic where you keep your stuff or whatever, and I don't, I don't play Tarkov, but, you know, in contrast to Fortnite then, where in Fortnite you you win and you've got all this powerful stuff at the end, but then the next round everything's kind of reset completely. Well, in Tarkov, I think you do get to retain some of your stuff. But because um, that can't go on forever, right, because it, it wouldn't really make sense to allow people to build up all this wealth uh, forever and ever, they have to kind of reset. There's a season element to it and they have to reset everybody every now and again well in an eve universe type game you know when you gather all your loot and you extract you 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 know you can imagine that that's going to be meaningful every time you do it right because you kind of bank in some resource or some like isk related or uh sov related uh you know faction warfare type thing um so i i think that's where it is going to be potentially a much a, a bit of a magic ingredient then because I, I do wonder you know when you look at games like call of duty and, and others yes they have leaderboards yes you can become the best at that particular map or or with that particular weapon and you can get higher rankings but then what and that's the difference with eve right that if you play eve for a long time you can become extremely powerful or rich both uh, you can, you, as a group, you can muster a lot of um, resource and power. Well, that's what's missing from a lot of multiplayer games, right? And there is some, there is some advantage to that wealth buildup in a FPS game because it's still relatively quick to death, and in a full loot experience or close to full loot, 
you could be a very powerful legacy player when someone else finally brings you down. It's an incredible moment for that player who then gets to grab some really rare stuff and be able to boast that they've killed you, right? Yeah. And the stakes, right? There's there's something to be said. A lot of games in the last 20 years that have come out have been low stakes. So, you know, I remember when I first started playing games, you had three lives and that was it. And once you, or sometimes actually one life and, and you died and that was it. And then you had to start from the beginning again. And of course that wasn't for everyone. And as the 90s came along, we had save states and things and we were able to, you know, save our progress and things like that. And people enjoyed that. But then it kind of got carried away and, and basically, you know, you 10 seconds into a map and it's auto-saving every 10 seconds or whatever. And, and there's never any stakes left. Okay. So recently, you know, there's been more of a trend towards games. Well, the people have spoken. They buy games like Elden Ring in droves, you know, and Elden Ring is is cruel. Elden Ring, you know, those, those, uh, those From Software games are brutal when it comes to loss mechanics and, you know, there's high stakes and stuff, but people love it. People really like to play a game where the stakes are high. Yeah, so that's how you get the shakes. That's why Eve PvP is so endearing. The actual mechanics of Eve PvP are not very intuitive or necessarily very interactive, but because of the stakes, because you've put so much into it and you know what's on the line, yeah, that's where the investment comes from. That's why people are willing to put in the hours and hours to do it. Well, I'm excited, man. I hope this gets a little bit of a cleanup. Uh, I know some players were kind of ragging on the graphics. I thought the graphics-wise, things were actually an improvement over what they demoed at FanFest. Um, yes, there's some some green around the edges of places where green shouldn't be, and not everything looks as good as it should. But one of my main concerns watching the FanFest trailer was that it was going to be too gray and flat. It's still quite gray, um, but they've managed to do a good job of making things pop out a little bit more. You can actually tell that there are other players in front of you that have everything kind of blending into the background. And I think it's only the beginning of that. There's more improvements they're going to make in that front, I'm sure. And the environment itself, looking cool. It was so much fun to go into the wrecked spaceship and see all the various spaceship bits, like the, the um, not habitat pods, but the... Um, the, the, the pods where you would grow things. What am I thinking of zero? Oh, like a hydroponics or whatever. Hydroponic like pods. Yeah. yeah. At least that's what I think they are. But it, it's clearly like a, you start seeing the little orbs and they're embedded into the ground and half of them are broken. You're like, what is that? And then you kind of go along that line and you see the main part of the ship that that's from. And half of the stuff is, is ripped off of it. And the rest of it's still in place, but kind of smoky. It's like, oh. That's cool. And some of them you can kind of go into the pod itself. Looks like it could might might be a good hiding and ambush spot. A lot of little nooks and crannies in there, and also a little piece of appreciation my friend saw, and I, I agree. If you walk into fire, it burns you. And there's little pools of acid around that you can accidentally wander into if you're not careful. And there's also friendly fire. So if you shoot your squad mates by accident. They pay the price. All in all, to say it's a very, it's it's much more immersive and realistic than a lot of games in the genre. So I do think it hits that niche. Yes, I I agree. I think it's just good that they 
right from the very beginning, seem to be hitting the right spots in that regard. And I imagine that it'll stay pretty much like I've described, you know. You won't die instantly, but it, it's not gonna, you're not going to be sort of pumping an, an entire clip into somebody and then they actually, oh, finally they're dead, you know, because that's what turned me off a lot of um, the modern type, you know, shooting games. I mean, there was this one mod of, of Quake 2 that I loved. It was called Action Quake 2 uh, because uh, they felt that Quake 2 was a little bit gimmicky and a bit, yeah, silly. And this modding community decided to make Action Quake 2, which was kind of like Quake 2, but with in the theme of an action movie where, you know, you, you sort of you shoot somebody and they die like really dramatically. And um, and it ended up becoming extremely popular. The modder community that did Action Quake 2 went on to do Action Half-Life and Action other games. And essentially what they ended up doing was taking these first-person shooters that were also multiplayer shooters and making them more realistic. So they would put real guns in them and and one headshot, you'd be dead. If you shot somebody in the stomach, they'd die, but they would bleed out first and they'd have a few seconds to shoot you back. If you shot them in the legs, they'd, they wouldn't walk quickly anymore. And all of these mechanics that eventually found their way into other games. And yeah, straight away, it felt like that style of shooter um, where you have to crouch and aim and shoot in short bursts, like you said, because if you run and gun, the gun is just going to go everywhere. And I know that is a common thing in a lot of games these days, right? But it it they never really seem to get it right for me. Every shooter I've ever played lately is just too easy to control the gun. It's just not fluid enough or you feel too slow and sluggish and they don't get the balance right. And I think this game straight away felt like it was getting the balance right. Exciting future ahead for CCP, perhaps. Dust was a good game in terms of shooter mechanics, but Dust mechanics were not the problem. It was not the reason that game was not successful. It was CCP's rollout and marketing and strategic decisions. So definitely a fraught road ahead for Vanguard regardless, but off to a good start, I would say. Reason to be optimistic, and I hope there's a future version that comes out that's a little more optimized or has an even lower settings version that I could try. Maybe. Either that or I'll just have to bite the bullet and get a better computer at some point soon. We've got a pair of contract updates for you. NAR has been busy, busy the past week. The first up, we had a brawl in a wormhole. We were contacted to help secure a wormhole called Minerva. At least that's the nickname the locals have given it. It's a C4 Pulsar, which meant shield ships were the order of the day. The Astra had already been reinforced. We were coming to put the nail in the coffin. We It was a very odd timer for us. It was quite early, unfortunately. So when we took the field, we didn't really have the numbers that we wanted to have. But we seemed to have the edge over the Defender if they brought the ships that we believed they were going to bring. Fortunately, they did not. (laughs) Uh, We brought uh, three Vargers and some support ships. Our local group that we were helping out was a multi-boxer, had a lot of Ravens. He was set up to do some long-range damage, keep the timer paused, and we were going to cover the Ravens with the Vargers. Unfortunately, our opponents also undocked three Vargers, plus an entire battlecruiser fleet, so we were quite outgunned. Uh, 
we thought we would well we were we were going to take the fight we were going to take the fight let's put it that way it was kind of a coin flip either one of their vargers was going to die and we would take the edge or one of our vargers was going to die and we would take the edge the way the fight played out was a little unfortunate uh, the ravens lodgy got deleted within a minute of each other so they started bleeding down our dps dropped quite quickly and we lost the marauder advantage Luckily, we were able to extract most of the fleet. We went one for one, one Marauder for one Marauder, and actually came out slightly ahead on Isk because their Marauders were blinged big time. Not big time, really, but they had some money in them. So we had the edge there. The timer did repair. Midweek, the employer went and hit them again. But this time, they decided to evacuate entirely rather than risk having to redo that fight. And no one turned up for the defense, so it just died quietly, and the group that we were attacking peaced out. So a successful contract, and you got a fight. Yeah, it wasn't a successful fight, but strategic objective achieved. They were, I guess, and and honestly, if they if they had tried to redo that fight even 90 minutes later, then our numbers would have been able to take them. And I think the timer was set for 1800. So it was kind of a 50, 50 chance for them as to whether or not they'd have the time zone advantage. I just weren't willing to do it. So they, they cried a lot apparently about having mercenaries called on them, but at the end of the day, you know, and, and props to them. They, they realized they couldn't do it. So they just, cut their losses and ran. But shout out to Patchwork Freelancers. It was a good fight. And uh, yeah, good fight, good contract. It was nice to get the Vargers out and not not like have people just run away or have it be one-sided or, or just whelp them entirely. It was a good proper brawl, which you don't usually get with those things. Uh, one thing that I'm curious about, Alec, and I, of course... I can't ask you directly to tell me why the employer wanted this this whole, uh, you know, dealt with in, in the way that it was, um, because you may or may not be able to comment on that, right? So I'm just going to sort of put that out there first. But theoretically, you know, and if you can't answer, it's no problem. But why would somebody want to see four pulsar? Because isn't isn't that a kind of odd wormhole to own a C four? It seems like it's getting more popular. I'm not the first alliance I've run into recently who's been either the proud owner of or looking to upgrade into one of those. Uh, the statics were C3, C4, which is itself pretty odd. Why would you want to connect to another C4 if you have a C4? But Well, this is my understanding of why C4s have historically been somewhat less popular, right? Because they... They connect to other C4s um, and, and things of that nature. Like you don't get, uh, I think when you're in a C4, you can't get a static to, to K-space, right? Right. It's always as two wormhole statics as far as I understand. And those wormhole statics, they're not going to be like a C6 perhaps. They're not going to, I don't know, maybe they are, but. Um, I think some are. Okay. So maybe then, but yeah, like I I, I just vaguely remember reading before a few times that 
you know, not many people go out there and live in a C4. So perhaps that, that is changing. They're kind of like a crossroads wormhole. You know, they're, they're wormholes that connect other wormholes. You're not going to get a direct K space. Um, I, I think connecting to the C3, that makes sense. They're good holes to, to farm ISC-wise. I guess connecting to another C4, you get a, a wide range of other potential connections if you don't mind going down the chain a time or two. I don't know the dynamics of it, but they certainly seem to be getting more popular purely anecdotally. Yeah. But as far as I know, the, the story that was relayed to me for this contract was the group we were helping and the group we were attacking had kind of cohabitated here for a while, but hadn't really interacted with one another. I, I assume due to time zone reasons or something like that. Or maybe one of them wasn't as active in the wormhole as the other one. Don't quite know. But uh, that situation was going to be untenable, and one group wanted exclusive control. And so they started attacking each other, and we were hired to make sure the side that our employer wanted to win, win. Well, that that gives a full explanation then for me, because that makes perfect sense. Next contract is even more straightforward. There is a try Athenor onlining in Wicked Creek. Our employer did not want it to successfully online. <laughs> so we got hired in for the anchoring timer. This was a, a good time for us. We had great turnout. We put out a full cyclone fleet issue fleet using the new fits that we talked about earlier. In one of the previous episodes, I think it was two episodes ago. When we, we talked about that doctrine. We got to take it out and this was a perfect opportunity for it. The defenders were supposed to be the tri black ops brigade. We expected to see 20 to 25 black ops battleships and maybe a handful of cap ships defending. We didn't, Quite get that. <laughs> we got like 25 to 30 Cyclone Fleet issues and Lokis with Hugans and Basilisks and just a real proper shield battlecruiser fleet. It had us outnumbered about two to one. We had no local support. It was just us. Structure had to die, though. We took field first, and we got it pretty deep. I'd say it was about two-thirds dead before Tri took the field. And it was clear that we had a speed advantage. And we were actually able to tank their damage, even despite the numbers disadvantage, due to the fitting designs of our Cyclone Fleet issue fleet. So we were tanking all right. They caught one of our T1 Lodges in the rear and pinned that down and killed it. But otherwise, we were good. And so we just kept shooting the structure. There was no chance we were going to break through their Lodges, so fighting the fleet was out of the question. Um, but the structure died. As it died... One of their dictors was edging ever closer to our fleet. I have the entire fleet aligned and I'm I'm looking at the time or not the timer, the hit point bar, and I'm looking at him and I'm looking at the hit point bar and looking at him like, oh man, he's getting real close to bubble range, but it's almost dead. Everybody overheat, let's go, let's go, let's go. Finally, the last missile lands. It blows up. I press the warp fleet button just as I see the graphic for that bubble expand. And my heart kind of sank. I'd already clicked. It was too late. Um, most of the fleet got out, but we did lose a semi and two scythe fleet issue, or excuse me, a cyclone fleet issues. That sucked. It was a more costly loss than we we should have had. But the objective was achieved. 
Isk wise, we came out ahead again. It was just bloodier than we would have liked. Employer was so impressed that we were able to kill it with that numbers disadvantage. He was just over the moon. So quite happy with that. I don't know what the backstory is for that particular contract. I don't know if there's a dispute over that moon in particular or grudge against try or whatnot, but it was a very interesting and exciting operation. So with an Athenaut, it's it's a 24-hour anchor, correct? Yes. So that was a short notice one for you then? Yeah, it was. It was quite a short notice contract. But, um, you know, no better time to hit that structure than before it has a core, before it has fits. So uh, I just threw the ping out and we got as many people as we could get the day beforehand, which, like I said, was a pretty good turnout now. It was European time zone or European time zone is getting used to having regular fleet hops. So people just turned up. Um, luckily, it was enough. I think yeah, if we were absolutely. even one DPS ship short, that contract would not have worked out. So major props to everybody that turned out for that fleet. You should have shot that dicta before you walked out. Yeah, that was the feedback I got from the fleet. Um, <laughs> I was a little too a little too risk adverse trying to warp us off. Should have stayed and shot the dicta. I was just worried that you know some of their fleet could. Uh, cr- creep closer to us or warp in and warp off, warp in kind of thing, get a little closer. They had a lot of Lokis and Hugans and a lot of nasty long range. Oh, stuff. Yeah. 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 So I was, I was quite mm. nervous about getting us caught by the fleet. And I thought when I, again, when I pressed the button, I thought he hadn't deployed his bubble yet. So I thought we were all going to get away clean. If he had dropped his bubble and I'd noticed that before I clicked the button, I probably would have just had to shoot him and then kite out of it. Because we, we would have, I think, been able to escape the bubble's edge before the rest of the fleet got within any kind of dangerous ranges of us. Or maybe we would have lost one cyclone instead of two. But, uh, yeah. I wasn't confident we could kill the Dictor with that much Lodgy on the field, and I wasn't quite clear if he was out of their range yet or not. See, that's that, why I didn't that's, call for it. Yeah, that's what I, I imagined in more separation, right? Because you said about the, the speed advantage, but I suppose because you're, you're, you're kind of tethered in a sense to this structure. Yeah. You can't really guarantee, you know, like those Hugins, those Latch, the Lodgy being able to keep the Dictor up. Yeah, perhaps. And in fact, I had to cut the angle a little bit. As we were trying to kill it, we were about to fly outside of missile range. So I had to turn us slightly to the right. So we weren't flying directly away from their fleet anymore. And they were able to close range a little bit. That's why I was kind of getting a bit nervous there. But in hindsight, I do think if I had stayed, we'd have been fine. Let's do more for next time. There's no um, opportunity really for drone damage with that setup, right? Uh, There's that little trick you can do, right, where you put the drones on the structure and then you can kite out then. You can leave the drones, do the work. And like they'll just keep the timer going. They'll you know the, they'll keep the structure dying. That slowly. would have worked, but it would have taken forever for the thing to die. I was really yeah. trying to put put this thing in the dirt before. <laughs> Again, <laughs> their fleet was creeping ever closer. They did have combat probes out. You know, it was oh a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It wasn't exactly a controlled grid, so I was definitely trying to get this thing done and get the fuck out of there. Oof. Well, at the end of the day. If they did catch you, it would have been a lot more than a simi and uh, what was it? Another 
two cyclones. Yeah, yeah. We lost the scythe initially. Uh, the reason being it was a multi-boxer. He was slow on the anchor command, wound up missing links, and was terminally behind the rest of our fleet. Unfortunate. But uh, everybody else did good. We lost the scythe. Even with minus one Lodgy, we were still able to keep up against the damage of that entire fleet. It's pretty groovy. Yeah. I think the mitigation we talked about before. Yeah, and I just... think that's the, the key bit of this fleet that I'm learning. Is the mitigation is great. The DPS is not there. And I think in fairness, compared to our other long-range doctrine of the Omen Navy issues, they wouldn't be doing any better, uh, but they don't have the mitigation. In fact, they do less damage than than the Cyclone fleets. Yeah. So... And I think about the fleet that the Cyclones replaced, which was a Afterburner Harbinger Doctrine. If we had brought that instead, it would have just been overtaken by the, the Lokis and the Cyclones and would have died and it wouldn't have gotten any kills anyway. So I think it's just one of those things. You, you only have so many people in fleet and those people can only do so much mechanically before you hit a bit of a wall. I don't think it really has anything to do with the ship itself. Yeah. It's a numbers thing as well, right? You're at a two-to-one disadvantage. Yeah, it was at least two-to-one. It might have actually been a bit more. And they had Bazis the other side. Yeah, I think they had five Bazis, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. I mean, those missiles, they're going to take forever to get there anyway. Yeah. And they're going to have all this time to work out what's going on. It was five Bazis versus ten Cyclones on our side. Not going to work out. <laughs> Not going to work out. But, you know, we, we keep growing, and we've grown a lot this year. We I think we've doubled our size generally in terms of active pilots, and in European times and in particular, we've more than tripled our fleet size. Growth has been great for us this year. So if we keep on that track next year, even if we don't literally do as well, if we just keep growing that little bit, turn those 10 cyclones into 15, I think we'll start to get some more success. Absolutely. I mean, it could go even, like, one or two extra people could bring three or four extra characters all together, right? It's, uh, yeah. 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 But you need to hit that, you need to hit that point where you're able to alpha strike somebody, or uh, otherwise there's always going to be an N plus one log- logistics battle for you. You're going to run into these null sec alliances, which can field huge amounts of players. They're stuffing people in logistics ships. They've got seven, eight Lodgy. You can't do tons if you don't have that critical mass to alpha strike, or at least maybe not alpha, but within one or two shots, kill them. Because if the Lodgy reacts, they're going to keep them up. It's just an overwhelming amount of reps for the kind of fleets that we could bring against fleets of that size, long range kitey stuff. But we're working on it. (laughs) We're a lot closer now than we've ever been. Speaking of big fights, though, Zero, do you want to talk to us about the Tama Dread Brawl? Yeah, so it looks like, well, I missed this, right? So I've been reading up on it, and it sounds like one of those kind of escalations where, you know, everything kind of fell into place, I suppose, right? Um, Weekend, so, you know, great time for an escalation. But it looks like it wasn't really planned out this way, Um as far as I can tell, it was just, what was it, Sedition going on a roam? Is that where this started? Uh, it was actually 
not sedition. It was a wormhole group called DKVC. I believe that stands for, I had it written down somewhere. Uh, Dark Venture Corporation. They're part of Kitchen Sinkhole Alliance. So they just went to Tama then, right? And just, I suppose they just started fighting people. Yeah, I guess it was somebody's birthday. So they, uh, they took a dread yeah. out and they found a dread baiting in Tama and decided to smash them together and make them kiss. And then sedition and eventually snuffed out. And well, who was there altogether? Well, they, the guys that owned the bait dread, they escalated. And I think sedition escalated into that. And then after about an hour or so, snuffed escalated into that. And the fact that snuffed turned up late looks like it was the uh, the magic ingredient for this. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sedition's AAR says that Snuff was busy south. Not exactly clear what they were doing, but they had intel that they wouldn't be able to react immediately. And I think it shows the kind of effect an Apex group like Snuff has on the area. If they're around, none of this is happening. The baiting probably isn't happening. The cap escalation to the bait definitely isn't happening. Uh, but because they're out, it allows all these other more balanced groups or groups that don't quite know if who the top dog is, now they're scrapping more. They feel free to cut loose a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll give an example about Eve Uni, right? I mean, in Syndicate, uh, there are times when relatively large, I, I think anyway, groups exist around that area or similar areas in the game, right? So you'll have... People that can field caps easily, people that can, you know, engage a Titan bridge and drop, you know, chunky stuff on you. Um, but then when when those people have gone on holiday or whatever, they, they're kind of busy elsewhere, the smaller groups in, in those areas can, you know, do more uh, sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, stuff they wouldn't normally, normally be able to do, right? So, yeah, this is another example of that. And, well, what was it, 300 bill? 300 billion. I mean, Ooh. 200 of that was uh, was snuffed. Huh. Yeah, snuff's uh, counter drop did not go well. Those Sinitras, I mean, you know, you only have to lose one of those, but they lost two. Uh, the entire fight lasted a bit over an hour. I'm not quite a minute mark, but if it didn't, it was close. Some of the, the kills on here are not from the fight itself and the battle report that I'm looking at, but it was quite a long engagement. Rare to see cap ships engagement in Lozek last that long, specifically because of the snuff escalation factor. Like what happened with these faxes, I wonder? On the snuff side, they lost like three apostles? I uh, might have been left behind. Hmm. I know there was some extraction effort at the end there. Anyway, good fight for everyone involved. Happy birthday to that dude. Uh, apparently the one <laughs> dreadnought on, I'm not sure whose alliance this guy's a part of, but it was the first time he was flying a dread. I think it might've been one of the Norvik hiking guys. <laughs> so congrats to him on an amazing first cap ship experience. Crazy. We've got Anger Games coming up, Anger Games 6. That is going to be announced at the end of the month. We don't have a ton of detail or hard information to give you guys for this episode, so we are going to punt that to the next episode. Hopefully we'll give you more about that announcement in January, info about the dates, the rules, how to sign up if you like. 
For those who aren't familiar, the Anger Games is a player-run alliance tournament equivalent, usually run in the middle of the year, or middle of the alliance calendar year anyway. Uh, it's typically seen as a good proving ground for the alliance tournament pilots to test out meta, to test out new team compositions and new team members before the actual alliance tournament. So kind of see this as a, a mid-year tournament could be a very interesting preview for what we get in the next Alliance tournament. So it will be covered on the show for sure. Looks like it'll be on Thunderdome again as well, which is, I think, great news because we'll have a new influx of people getting Thunderdome accounts and being able to use that in scrimmages to practice, uh, which is something that I've missed recently. It's been a shame not to be doing that stuff. Yeah. Well, my host highlight real quick. I got inspired one night. I was just laying in bed and I had a really cool idea. What about Dungeons and Dragons random encounter tables for Eve? What would that look like? And all of a sudden I realized I had enough in my head to actually map it out. So then actually I think I got up in the middle of the night to start writing it because I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I wrote it all out and decided the next day to post an MPSI op around it. So next week, I will be doing a Random Encounters MPSI room. It's going to have the op type, the ships, and where we do it, all determined by real dice roll. I'm going to break out my dice bag and roll those babies like they haven't been rolled in 20 years. We could camp, we could roam, we could do black ops, we could try to find a timer fight, we could do ESSS or plexes, we could go wormhole fishing. I have 20 fleet types and doctrines that, to roll out with, depending on what the D20 gives me, including all the way up to Lashaks and Armageddons. And then, of course, Thera, Faction Warfare, Non-Faction Warfare, Low Sec, Null Sec, Wormhole Space, Pochvin. So it'll be 2D6 and a D20. And we'll see what's what. Could very well be uh, trying to find a timer fight in remote rep Navy Megas in an ESS in low sec. Who knows? <laughs> it could be very random, very weird combinations. So, Alec, what if I said to you that you've rolled and you've you've ended up with Merlins with T1 Logi in stain? Trying to find a dread to kill. I, I hope some of those Merlins have newts. Well, <laughs> since our last show, that's what happened to me, right? Because, um, well, we, we've been doing these Merlin fleets still with, with new RFCs, and we've been going through Thera, showing them Thera, how that works. And we ended up in, in Stain, and somebody said, Oh no, there's no content here. So I said, "Oh no, no, no! Don't be, you know, don't be too uh, dismissive. Now let's keep going." So then we kept going, and there was about 25 people with us, and all of a sudden there was a Phoenix Navy issue on a gate. So we spent a bit of time playing about with this Phoenix Navy issue, and there was a bit of a response, and we were trying to kill the response, and it came became apparent that this Phoenix Navy issue wanted to stay on grid and try and kill as many Merlins as it could. So we realized that we were a few jumps from Thera. And we kind of reached out to people who play the game in Thera and said, hey, do you want to come and kill a Phoenix Navy issue? 
anyway, long story short, kept it busy for a few more minutes. And then suddenly in comes, you know, some dictators and stuff. And we, we managed to uh, trap this Phoenix Navy issue uh, between two gates. And um, yeah, we grounded down and uh, got as many Merlins and uh, Logi, T1 Logi frigs on the kill as we could. And it blew up and everybody was happy. So how do you top that? Well, you don't really, right? But we were out again about a week later, and we uh, were in Thera again, and we went from Thera to some place in Horde space. And we were uh, not getting a response from the locals. They 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 had this little pocket system. They had some uh, large um, bubbles deployed so that, you know, we couldn't really do a lot quickly to get to their, to their miners and things. And long story short again... We decided to shoot the bubbles, which seemed to anger the locals. It angered the locals enough that they would dare to bring out some marauders. So we we didn't run away. We tried to engage the marauders. And then when that wasn't working out for anyone, they undocked a Phoenix Navy issue. So guess what we did? <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, we had another response from the Thera residents. And we killed another Phoenix Navy issue with Merlins, kind of. No, you tackled the fleet Navy issue with Merlin. Well, we didn't like even got, do that, Alec. It to a nightmare fleet. Alec, we didn't even tackle it with the, with it. In the end, we kind of baited it into its own nest of bubbles kind of thing by sort of playing around and um, and sort of kept it busy long enough for the nightmare fleet to turn up. But hey, you know, it was all very much fun and games and everybody was happy because yet again, the Merlins had, you know, done it again. Yeah, that Merlin fleet is is really turning out for you guys. I don't know. It, it looks engageable, right? But you've just got to be prepared that, you know. I mean, we we are waiting now. The next goal is a super, but we'll see. Let me give some shout-outs to our golden elite, Faded Trades, Kestrel Swainson, Crav, Martin Tweak. And I also want to give a shout-out to all of our fans and local. I've had... Uh, like way more people than usual say hi in local or DM me in, in fleets that I've joined or locals that I've popped into saying how much they really love the show. Um, shout out to shrooms. He's a dude that just joined Federation frontline. Uh, apparently he's a huge podcast fan. There were a few other guys in faction warfare that were like, Oh my God, man, love it. Some of the dudes in the Gristas now I've been fans of the show for a while. So Shouts to all you guys. Thank you so much. I love when people combo me or say hi at local, say that they're fans and local. Keep it up. Well, for me, it'd be a shout out to Ugate Mollerant and Gideon Mastracci because, you know, they're the ones that connect the dots and make things happen for us when we find Phoenix Navy issues, uh, a few jumps from Thera. Gideon's a great guy. Absolutely. All right, folks. That is it for the show, and that is it for 2023. Happy holidays to everyone. The cast of the show will be going on vacation quite soon, so we're not going to have our normal recordings until we all get back. But once we do, you can expect some holiday highlights, as well as a look at the Black Mark Awards. We usually do those in January, and this year is no exception. You'll be able to nominate and vote for your favorite your favorite guests, your favorite FCs, your favorite moments in Eve, moments on the show. And a shout out to everyone who will participate in that process. It's one of my favorite annual things in Eve, just because it's such, so nice to reminisce. 
it's easy to forget how much goes on <laughs> a given year and eve. And this is a nice way to kind of recap everything and give people the credit. Head to declarationsaward.com to participate in this show's poll. Leave a comment on the show's episode. Noir recruitment will be kind of cooling down over the holidays, but we'll still be on. Come to Cafe Noir. That's Cafe Space N-O-I-R dot in game. Find a link to our Discord, which will take you to the recruitment channel. as all the instructions and information you will need for that, as well as give you access to our community so you can ask any questions you've got of us and just kind of hang out, come chillax. And with that, happy holidays, listeners. <laughs>